0: I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on Treatment Planning for Depression in Early Recovery. This is based in part on Tip 48, Managing Depressive Symptoms in Use Clients During Early Recovery, that is put out by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. I am your host, Dr. Donnelly Snipes, and this is still Recovery Month 2020. In this class, we're going to identify instruments to guide treatment planning, identify some of the causes. of depression in early recovery and explore some behavioral, cognitive, emotional, and even situational interventions in order to help people get the most out of early recovery. Early recovery is a really hard time uh, because the person has quit using substance and their, their brain chemicals are still not... In balance, Their brain is going through some adjustments. Their body's going through some adjustments. So there's a lot of um, stuff going on internally, which can manifest as depressive symptoms. A lot of people are exhausted and depressed, sometimes because of situational factors, but sometimes for bio-psycho, uh psychological, biological and psychological factor. A person with depressive symptoms may have difficulty in any or all of the following areas. Now you will notice I regularly say depressive symptoms. Uh, If you've been to my classes before, you know I'm not a stickler for rising to the level of a DSM diagnosis before we do anything about it. If somebody has depressive symptoms, at the first sign of those symptoms, just like at the first sign of a cold, you'll want to do something about it. And people with depressive Impressive symptoms may have difficulty following instructions and keeping appointments. You know, think if you're not sleeping well, if you're not feeling well, how hard it is to focus and concentrate and, you know, be where you're supposed to be. Remember those things. It's not necessarily apathy. It's not that they're being resistant or not wanting to do it, but they may truly be having difficulty Putting one foot in front of the other in early recovery. A lot of people, especially in that first 30 days, but for some people, you know, first 90 days, they may feel like they are in a pea soup fog. They may have difficulty focusing and benefiting from group. When people are depressed, I mean, think about clients that you've worked with that have had depression. How easy is it for them to sustain focus for an hour or an hour and a half? How much do they actually pick up from group? And when I work with people, when I used to work with people in residential, the first 30 days they were with us. You know, I wanted them to get up and show up. And if they were able to get a nugget or two fruit, that was great. But expecting them to, you know expand their knowledge by leaps and bounds. That was not realistic. So it was important to set realistic goals for people so they didn't get frustrated. It's also really important, and I'll just give this little hint here, because of depression, because of the brain fog, it is really helpful, even for your people who are not visual learners, to give them handouts, give them bullet point things that they can go back and review. If you have videos like the ones I showed you at the beginning of class that they can go back and review over and over sometimes in order to, you know, get the point. That can be super helpful for them. They may have difficulty with energy to participate in program activities like going to meetings or even getting up and showering and, you know, taking part in recreation or sometimes going to group. I know a lot of times we had people who were really struggling to have the energy to even stay awake in group. And it's important to individualize. We don't want people skipping group um, and just staying in bed all day. That's gonna mess up their circadian rhythms. And we don't want to give people who are in earlier stages of readiness for change a pass and excuse but we do want to make sure that if somebody is truly having difficulty with their energy levels we take that seriously and we help them figure out how to modify their day so they can make it through they may have difficulty with motivation for change well Think about it. If, if you've ever been depressed, motivation is one of the first things that goes out the window and change, especially recovery from substance use or even recovery from depression can seem completely overwhelming to someone who's depressed and is already lacking energy. They're looking at that like climbing Mount Everest and you're looking at it going, Oh, heck no. The ability to make appropriate decisions about treatment needs and goals. Sometimes treatment just seems too overwhelming and people want to throw in the towel. Sometimes um, people want medication and they think that that's going to be the magic bullet. We do need to make sure that we're educating people, empowering them to make appropriate decisions. People who are clinically depressed are still generally very able to make their own decisions unless they're in a in the midst of a psychotic episode. But we do want to make sure that we are educating them. People with depression may have a belief that they cannot be helped. Sometimes they've been on six different antidepressants. Sometimes they have started to feel better before and then relapsed in their depression. Uh, we want to examine each one of those issues and figure out, you know, why did the why was there an, another flare up of the depression if they have had multiple major depressive episodes. We also want to look at prior relapses for substance use and see why they happened and learn from them. We also, if they're on medication for depression, for example, um, and they've been on multiple medications that may not have worked, we do want to educate them about the fact that different antidepressants target different neurotransmitters and work in different ways. That's why there are so many of them out there. And it's important to help them advocate for themselves and keep very clear um, notes about or logs about their mood and what happens when they take medications and when they don't take medication in order to help the psychiatrist narrow down whether they need a dopamine reuptake inhibitor, a norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, or something different. It's also important to recognize, and we'll talk about this in a minute, that sometimes the person has been on multiple antidepressants which typically only work for about 30% of the population they've been on multiple antidepressants and it hasn't worked why is this if they've been on you know sometimes they'll say every antidepressant known to man why why hasn't one of them worked for them well you know what maybe That's not where the issue lies. Maybe it is hypothyroid. Maybe it is something else that is causing the problem. So we do need to get outside the box a little bit. If somebody uh, has had multiple relapses in their mood disorder or their substance use or both, and try to understand what is motivating that behavior for that person. They may not have effective responsiveness to reinforcement. If you uh, tell them they did a good job, you know, That may not mean anything. If they're depressed, they're like, yeah, whatever. Can I go back to bed now? They may have difficulty with handling feelings, emotional dysregulation. They may have difficulty handling relationships with other people. That may include you, other clients in the program, or even their social support system, their sponsor, whomever. And we need to recognize that. And we need to educate significant others about the fact that this person is under a lot of stress right now, even if it doesn't look like it, their body is undergoing a lot of changes, a lot of repairs. They are uh, struggling, and so they may be more likely to get upset easier. They may be more likely to emotionally dysregulate, and we need to teach the client, as well as the specific and others... Things like distress tolerance skills and coping skills in order to help the person manage this period because, uh, and we've talked in other videos about the impact of substances on the HPA axis, but basically since the HPA axis or the threat response system is often just... You know, completely overcharged and and out of whack. When somebody is in early recovery, they may have gone to into a state what's called hypocortisolism. So the body has. Um, is conserving what cortisol it has left. And they go from what I call flat to furious. When they are just going bebopping about their day, they're flat. There's no grays. There's no colors. It's just kind of blah. Think Eeyore. Um, But then when they get upset, there is no middle ground. They emotionally dysregulate their body. Turns on that HPA axis, that threat response system, turns it on wide open. So they go too furious. They become irate. They become super anxious or maybe even super depressed. But there is no, you know, there's no moderation. And that is the body's reaction. And as the HPA axis heals, as the person develops coping skills, uh, etc., they will be able to regulate their emotions more but in early recovery and for a lot of people because post-acute withdrawal syndrome lasts for at least a year in some people i tell i tell clients you know be, be especially kind to yourself for the first year while you're learning these new skills and your brain and body are healing. They may have difficulty with attending and not disrupting group activities. For people who, um, for example, uh, abused opioids, it's triggering when somebody falls asleep in group because opioids are, are typically encourage people to be more sedate. So if somebody falls asleep in group, it can be triggering for someone else who had abused opioids, and that can be disruptive. It can be difficult for people who are detoxing from some other depressant, for example, to sit still because their anxiety levels are higher. Um, You know, remember the detox symptoms are... The opposite of what the intox symptoms are. And they may have more difficulty avoiding relapse after treatment is completed because guess what? They didn't internalize a bunch of stuff that they were learning because they were not able to focus. They were not able to apply it to themselves. When we think about treatment and in substance abuse, a lot of us use something called the ASAM. It's the American Society of Addiction Medicine Patient Criteria. And it has six dimensions. The first one, when you're considering somebody uh, for co-occurring disorders treatment, somebody with substance use issues who also has a co-occurring mood issue, in this case, depression, the first thing you want to make sure as is, is that they're acute crisis and dangerousness to self or others is stabilized. That makes sense. We want to make sure that they're in a safe place mentally, as well as physically. Their biomedical conditions and complications also may need address. We know that there are a whole host of biological issues that can contribute to depressive symptoms. And we want to make sure that, uh, We're getting people assessed for those things and we're starting to treat their chronic pain, their hepatitis, their um, hypothyroid, whatever else is going on. There may be emotional, behavioral, or cognitive issues. Well, that's probably why they're in treatment. So, you know, most treatment programs are going to address those. We need to examine their readiness for change for each issue or objective. And we're going to talk about different objectives. And as we go through, I will give you ideas of uh, statements you can use on on treatment planning for, for objectives. But you want to make sure, like, for example, if one objective was to help them improve their mood, well obviously. That seems to be a good one for uh, depressive symptoms. Some of their sub-objectives may be addressing sleep hygiene, improving nutrition, reducing caffeine, and increasing exercise. All right. Well, Sally Jo may be really ready or really willing, motivated, whatever, to address sleep hygiene because she's tired of being tired all the time. And she may be willing to consider eating a little bit better, but giving up caffeine and starting to exercise, uh, that's a big no. Her readiness for change for each issue needs to be addressed and we need to implement motivational tactics for each area. Uh, We want to help her, for example, about caffeine. She's not ready to change it. That's fine. But we do want to provide her information about how caffeine can impact her recovery and why it might be important and steps that she might be able to take, for example, when she's ready to address that. We want to look at the relapse or continued problem potential, uh, especially before discharge. What maintained this problem in the person when they were not in your treatment. If they are in outpatient treatment, this is especially important to address. What things outside of the treatment walls uh, may contribute to relapse or or continued, continued depression? And you want to make those target goals. So if they're living in an environment that is especially stressful, if they hate their job, you know. There are a lot of things that could be happening, but we do need to acknowledge those. You can't handle everything all at once. Rome wasn't built in a day. But if you lay out a roadmap, if you lay out a plan of, okay, we're going to start addressing these things and knocking them off one by one, it gives people hope. It gives people direction, that good orderly direction that we talk about sometimes. And we want to examine their recovery environment, where they're living, if they... Have problems with alcohol misuse. Is there alcohol in the house? Do they work in a bar? (laughs) Some of those things that we need to look at in order to help the person assess and modify their recovery environment is going to be really important. But we also want to look in terms of depression at the recovery environment. What in their recovery environment might be maintaining their depression? For example, maybe they had their kids taken away. And when they're at home, they, you know, are bouncing around looking at all the pictures of their children, but they don't have their children with them. So that might be a trigger in their environment that could maintain some depression. Not saying they have to get rid of those pictures, but it's important to understand what may be triggering desires to use as well as depressive symptoms. There are multiple screening instruments and I'm not going to go through each one of them. You can download the PDF from the class and click on the links. The DSM-5 promise is out there. The severity measure for depression, uh, the PHQ-9, the Zung self-rating depression scale, the Center for Epidemiological Studies Depression Scale, the severity of post-traumatic stress syndrome s- stress symptoms uh, for adults, the severity measure for generalized anxiety disorder for adults. All of those are freely available on the internet. So if you're in private practice and you're like, I can't afford those really expensive screening tools, no big deal. You can um, access them. Uh, for free. They're open source if you want to think about it that way. Cognitively, you can screen for attributional style. Do they see things as internal, you know, that they should have control over everything or is their locus of control more external? You can screen for their hardiness and their perceived stress. Hardiness is significantly negatively correlated with depression. As hardiness goes up, depression goes down. As hardiness goes up, relapse rates go down. So we want to see where the person is in terms of their hardiness. And then there is a stress awareness and hardiness scale. Those are all different instruments that you can use if you really... Uh, want to use instruments, or if you want to even explore some of things, these things, for example, in group, like hardiness, you can do a group on hardiness, have everybody take the hardiness and perceived stress scale at the beginning of group, and then talk about what that means and how to enhance hardiness. It doesn't have to be part of the assessment. You can use screening instruments throughout treatment to provide people with um, self-awareness. So let's talk about some of these causes of depression. Basically, depression results from a biochemical imbalance. That is the root that we're talking about. And there are a bunch of things that can cause that biochemical imbalance, including imbalances, you know, sometimes it's too much, sometimes it's too little, depending on um, the neurochemical and the receptors being targeted. But there can be imbalances in norepinephrine, which affect focus and motivation. They can have imbalances in glutamate, which may make them feel fatigued or overly anxious. They can have imbalances in serotonin, serotonin, which impact contentment, their ability to relax, pain, sleep, hunger, heart rate. Serotonin is one of those that we've talked about a lot that has dozens of different types of receptors. Some of them are excitatory, some of them are inhibitory. And it's important to know, you know, get an idea what's going on. Just because somebody is depressed, doesn't, or has symptoms of depression, doesn't mean that necessarily their serotonin is too low. It could be one of these other things. Dopamine. When people take antipsychotic medications, that lowers dopamine, which also makes most people who take them feel extraordinarily tired. Dopamine is significantly correlated to energy, to motivation, to memory, to focus, as well as to pain management. When dopamine is low, people are going to struggle. Thyroxin or your thyroid hormones. Hypothyroid can start at any point in life. And there's actually a significant number of people who have hypothyroid. And significant ongoing stress, chronic stress, has been associated with the development of hypothyroid. When people are abusing substances, every time they use, their body registers that as a stressor because they're being flooded with a toxin. Every time they go through withdrawal, every time they detox, and that can be even after one use, their body registers that as a stressor because now they're you know, trying to compensate and rebalance the system. So both use and withdrawal activate the HPA axis. So use in and of itself is chronic stress on the body, and it can impact thyroxin levels. Super easy to have a blood test to figure out what t- um, uh, the thyroxine levels are. Sex hormones... When the HPA axis is activated a lot under chronic stress, it alters levels of sex hormones because the body says now is not the time to procreate. We need to focus on fighting or fleeing. As sex hormones are altered, the availability of other neurotransmitters like dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine are also altered. And cortisol, we talked about that earlier. When the body is in under persistent stress and that HPA axis is, you know, revved consistently, It uh, eventually the body says, I can't run this hot for this long. Think about sitting in the driveway with a car in park and your foot on the gas, just revving that engine as hard as it will go. That engine's going to get hot. And if you don't want to crack your engine block, you got to put, pull off some of the gas. So the body kind of does this for us. When there's persistent stress for too long, the body backs off on the cortisol, which is our stress hormone. And it says, no, we can't run this hot for this, for con- continue to do this because it's it's not good. It's going to cause us problems, which is great. The brain wants to protect us. But unfortunately, when cortisol is, um, restrained, that also leads to a lot of these feelings of depression. Cortisol, yes, it's our stress hormone, but we need a certain amount to keep our heart rate up, to get us motivated to get out of bed in the morning. Cortisol, when your circadian rhythms are in balance, should spike and be at its highest point in the day when you wake up in the morning. And then it gradually declines over the day as you, you know go through your day and when you're getting ready to, for bed, it should be at its lowest level. But if your body's saying, no, nah, we're not going to spike that cortisol, then it may stay at that low level like you feel when you're ready for bed all day long. And that can feel like depression. It can increase fatigue. It can increase difficulty concentrating, etc. So we need to ask ourselves, what's causing this biochemical imbalance? What is causing the HPA axis to be dysfunctional well there are a lot of things that contribute to stress Um, lack of quality sleep and I've hyperlinked a bunch of things in this PowerPoint and they will take you to additional videos on the YouTube channel that go into depth on how to help people with these particular issues Um, but anyhow lack of quality sleep your body registers that as a stressor when you are tired your body says oh no You don't have the energy to fight or flee, so let me ramp up that cortisol so you're prepared, so you can be vigilant. Exhaustion, burnout, and stress, you know, whatever you want to call it. Emotional things where, where you're just, you know, running on empty can cause a biochemical imbalance when that HPA axis, again, has been responding to stress for too long. Poor nutrition can... Be registered as a stressor if the person's not getting enough, you know, calories, that can be registered as a stressor. But you remember that what you eat is broken down to make the neurotransmitters and what you eat is broken down to nourish the gut microbiota that make the neurotransmitters. So poor nutrition can actually contribute to an insufficiency of certain neurochemicals. Chronic pain often keeps people from sleeping. So it impacts their sleep, which contributes to fatigue. It also ramps up that HPA axis. And chronic pain tells you that something is wrong in the body. And when something's wrong in the body, that HPA axis is activated again. Diabetes. uh, When blood sugar levels are out of control, that's registered as a stressor. Unfortunately, when... It's registered as a stressor. The HPA axis, one of the things cortisol does is cause the dump of blood glucose to the system. So it's this... Um, system that actually works against itself because that increases the blood glucose, which may make it more difficult. The person may need more insulin. Uh, makes more makes it much more difficult for them to manage their their insulin levels. Vitamin D deficiency. A lot of people who are recovering from substance misuse may not have been spending a lot of time outside, or maybe they spent too much time, but if they haven't spent enough time outside, if they've been holed up in their house um, drinking or using, <clears throat> they may not have enough vitamin D. We know that vitamin D deficiencies are associated with seasonal affective disorder and depression in general. That's one that's really easy to fix. Anemia is another cause. When your red blood cells can't carry oxygen throughout the body, feel tired. One of the main reasons that most people yawn is because they need more oxygen, not because they're actually sleepy, but because they need their body needs more oxygen. And other illnesses such as multiple sclerosis, lupus, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, Lyme disease, or even stroke can produce symptoms of depression, we want to make sure that people get a clean bill of physical health as a starting point. If you want to think about Mas- Maslow's hierarchy, remember that bottom level is biological needs before we even get up to self-esteem and safety and stuff. Well, same thing goes for treatment. We need to make sure those that biological foundation is intact. Side effects of medications can also cause a biochemical imbalance, Um, and it's interesting to recognize that some of these medications are very common in your uh, treatment population. varenicline, which is a drug that's used for smoking cessation, statins, which are cholesterol medications, hormone-based birth control, interferon, which is used for cancer, but also hepatitis. And many people in substance abuse treatment are being treated for hepatitis. Heart medications, including beta blockers and calcium channel blockers, also contribute to uh, symptoms of depression in some people. And it's important to to think about it. I mean, with heart medications, if we're not getting oxygen circulating through the body appropriately, adequately, fast enough, then people are going to feel fatigued. And, uh, so that can contribute to it. Anticonvulsants can also be a, uh, Produce symptoms of depression and and it's important to recognize because some people may be on anticonvulsants as an alternative to opioids for example for for pain or even um, uh, for anxiety. I've seen some doctors prescribe anticonvulsants as opposed to benzos for anxiety. Now, many of your patients may not be on those because they're prohibited in your treatment program, but it is important to know. The last two are really interesting. Singulair, in March of 2020, was required by the FDA to put a black box warning on on the label that indicated that people taking Singulair had a significantly increased risk of depression and suicidal ideation. Not uncommon to see people on asthma medication. Uh, Singulair in particular is the one that had to have the black box warning. And isotretinoin is an acne medication. This is probably going to be more common if you're working with an adolescent or a young adult who is... uh, in treatment, but if they are on this medication, it can cause symptoms of depression. Does that mean they need to come off of them? No, not necessarily because they may need that medication for a whole other reason. But it is important to recognize that some very common medications that you wouldn't think about may cause depressive side effects. And that's true even for people who aren't in substance abuse recovery. Changing behaviors. What do we need to do? Identify a behavior that can be addressed. Keep it simple and achievable. Chunk it. Don't ask them, for example, to, you know, start exercising and for for 45 minutes a day. That is not achievable and it is not objective in um, early recovery. We need to keep it simple. What do I want them to do today? And make sure to chunk it. I, I try to keep especially in early recovery, keep it down to something somebody can do in 15 or 20 minutes instead of something that's going to take them an hour or two hours. Even when I think about something that's going to take an hour or two hours, get overwhelmed. So imagine how it is when you're, you've got some brain fog. Help them break big problems down into smaller achievable components, like we just talked about. Identify the goal that the person would like to achieve and make it measurable so the client can know when he or she has achieved it. How will you know when you're not depressed anymore? You know, what will that look like? And I always use the phrase as evidenced by. We'll have a better mood. I always try to phrase it positively. Instead of won't be depressed, I would say we'll be happier or we'll have a ba- better mood as evidenced by. And I want the client to tell me what's that going to look like when you've accomplished this problem or accomplish this goal. And explore ways the client has achieved the same goal or similar goals in the past. When you've been down before, when you've had no energy before, what has helped you? Even if it was just for an hour, what has helped you? Start building on those strengths. Identify internal and environmental barriers to success and which parts the client can and cannot control. Some things, for example... Like being in early recovery, that may be an internal barrier. Their their body's just not cooperating. They're not going to have energy for this first month. And they may not be able to control that fact, but what can they do to control their reaction to it? What can they do while they're having difficulty focusing and concentrating and having energy? How can they set small achievable goals? So, you know, instead of trying to remember everything, write it down. Instead of expecting themselves to stay up for 16 hours, try to stay up, for example, for four hours, and then take a break. May not be asleep, but may, maybe just take a break to relax for a few minutes. <clears throat> Identify how barriers can be overcome in specific behavioral terms. Making the barrier something to do rather than something not to do. So instead of saying, don't go back to bed, saying, I will take a walk around the neighborhood, or I will something else. So what are they going to do instead? (coughs) Identify how barriers can be overcome and uh, identify supports and specific steps needed to achieve success. So what do they need? Maybe they're in outpatient and they know they need to get up every day at eight o'clock in order to get their circadian rhythm set, but they know they're probably not going to do it on their own. So what can they do to make sure? What supports do they need to help, you know, prod them out of bed? Do they have a roommate that can help them get up? Do they need to put their alarm clock on the other side of the room? What is it that they can do? And elicit a commitment and to take action to achieve the goal. Make sure, as I said already like six times, that people get a physical to rule out any underlying biochemical issues that may be contributing to their symptoms. Educate them about nutrition and encourage them to learn about nutrition so they can have the building blocks to make the neurotransmitters and hormones needed. Encourage them to consider cutting out caffeine 12 hours before bed. Caffeine stays in your system for up to 12 hours. So if you quit drinking at noon, then it's still in your system until midnight and it's impairing your sleep and impairing your body's ability to clear out that adenosine. Encourage them to stay hydrated. Our body operates by sending signals through um, fluid channels. And when we're dehydrated, then those signals kind of short out along the way. Improve sleep hygiene. To hopefully eventually sleep seven to nine hours each night without waking. That is not an initial goal. That is an ultimate goal. An initial goal may be sleep two hours before waking up. Encourage them to get moderate exercise for up to 30 minutes a day. And for some people, moderate exercise may be walking the dog or just slowly walking around the house. Encourage people to get more sunshine. Five to 15 minutes a day is really all your body needs in order to get enough vita- enough sunshine to make the vitamin D it needs. That's not that much. Encourage people to do that. Review their medications for side effects. Address chronic pain with non-pharmacological interventions, such as TENS unit, massage, stretching, meditation, acupuncture, exercise as approved by the physician, heat or cold, and paying attention to ergonomics. And ultimately, for some things, there may need to be pharmacological interventions, like for thyroid issues, the doctor may have to put them on medication. For depression, you know, some people do benefit, especially in early recovery, from a short course, you know, one to two years of antidepressants to nudge their system along the way until it can start making enough neurotransmitters and rebalancing itself on its own. Emotional issues like depression, lack of pleasure, just, you know, not doing anything that makes you happy. Sometimes you need to squeeze out those happy chemicals. And if you're not doing anything to force your body to do that, then you may not feel those things. So uh, depression, lack of pressure, uh, lack of pleasure, stress, anger, PTSD, fears, such as fears of abandonment, isolation, rejection, failure, and loss of control. And just emotional dysregulation can cause that HPA axis to go into overdrive. We've already talked about what happens when that when that occurs. It increases your your glutamate. It increases your norepinephrine. It increases your cortisol. And it decreases your calming chemicals. It puts you in overdrive, which can be um, exhausting. It can increase anxiety. And if it happens for too long, eventually, when stuff happens... The person just either won't react or will go from flat to furious. In, when we talk about stress, you know, a lot of people have heard of flight, uh, uh, fight or flee. Well, some people have heard of fight, flee, or freeze. Sometimes we just, we don't know what to do and we freeze. And there's a fourth one out there. Fight, flee, freeze, or forget it. And that's not the F that I usually use, but it's the only F YouTube will allow me to use. Um. And when you get to that forget it point, that's when probably there's some hypocortisolism going on and you just don't have the stuff to care. You just, fine, whatever, I don't care. Um, and, and it's important to recognize that that is the result generally of excessive chronic stress and HPA axis over activation and that HPA axis needs calm down. Um, You need to help people develop tools to do that so it can rebalance and so the body can rebalance the neurotransmitters. Encourage people to keep a daily log of their nutrition, sleep, and things that trigger emotional distress, ways they cope, and encourage them to share it with their counselor's or you, to identify patterns, themes, and effective interventions. Sometimes, you know, you may note, people may notice that when they drink caffeine, it revs them up. Or when they drink caffeine, if they're in a state of hypocortisolism, they may drink caffeine and it actually makes them sleepy. You know, that's, you know, a big clue there. Um, Sleep. People may notice that they are more edgy, more irritable. They get more dysregulated when they don't have adequate sleep. All of those things are important to help the person identify what their vulnerabilities are for emotional distress. Work with them based on that information to develop a stress management plan. Have them identify 10 ways that they deal with anger, anxiety, and depression. Ideally, 10 ways they deal with each, but... Five ways for each can also work. Encourage them to do things that make them happy. I talk about uh, mood like a bath. And when we are stressed, when we're anxious, or even when we're excited, it's like running hot water. When we are relaxed, when we're calm, when content, it's like running cold water. Well, you don't want to be in an all hot or an all cold bath. You want to be in something that is tepid. And it's important, you know, if life is turning up the hot water, that you also turn on some cold water to balance that out sometimes. Um, The concept of yin and yang runs, uh, talks a lot about heat and cold as well. If you want to look into like traditional Chinese medicine, but I digress. Have them address guilt. Recognize that guilt is anger at themselves. Have them address necessary guilt. Sometimes they did things that they probably wish they hadn't done or didn't do things that they wish they had done. And they will need to cope with that. They will need to resolve that. But a lot of times people also feel guilty for things for which um, they probably, and I don't like the word should, but it's the only one I can think of now, they probably shouldn't feel guilty for. Like taking the day off on a weekend instead of having to be going six ways till Sunday, taking Saturday off and going, you know what? I am just going to veg today. Sometimes people feel guilty for that, and that is what I call unnecessary guilt. So Have them create a guilt bill of rights that helps them um, state what they have the right to do without feeling guilty. Help them address grief, learn distress tolerance skills, and encourage them to focus on the positive for 20 minutes per day. Studies have found that people who do this actually do... Uh, tend to have an improved mood, and they tend to notice more of the positive things in their environment. So during dinner, I encourage families to do this. During dinner, dinner should be 20 minutes of, tell me what went right today. You know, after dinner, we can talk about the stuff that went wrong. I don't want to ignore that. But set aside 20 minutes a day where you are focusing on all the things that are going right. When I work with couples, I have them do the same thing. Uh, Focus on 20 things or not... Twenty minutes uh, on things that they appreciate about one another, and things that they appreciate from the each other during that day. And yes, this a gratitude journal would work too if we want to have people do it um, uh, by themselves. Cognitively. Cognitive distortions, the way we think can also trigger that HPA axis, trigger um, that stress response. If we're using all or nothing thinking, like we think we can never recover or the whole world is against us. Um, The main ones that I talk about in my groups are all or nothing thinking, the availability heuristic, which means they're focusing on what's going on right now. So for example, thinking about life in general, and you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic, when people think about life in general and the economy and what's going on, a lot of times they will think back over the past maybe six months. And that's been pretty horrid. They forget about the, the prior, you know, four, eight, 12 years, you know, what's been going well. In marriages, for example, or in relationships or at work, we do the same thing. We focus on what is most recent, or we focus on what is most notable. Uh, plane crashes. There, Before the pandemic, there were tens of thousands of planes that flew every day and didn't crash. But when one crashes, everybody knows about it. And that's what people think about sometimes if they're afraid of flying. That's what people think about when they're going to the airport, that one plane crash, not the 2 million other flights that happened that year that didn't crash. So we want to help people look at the facts for things. Emotional reasoning, personalization, overgeneralization, jumping to conclusions, and magnification, making a mountain out of a molehill. Two different ways that I address this depending on my group. Sometimes I have a beach ball and on each piece of the beach ball I have a cognitive distortion written and I have people give me an example they catch the beach ball and they look down and whatever they see they have to give an example of how they've used that cognitive distortion and then what they how they could modify it so it was more moderate and and not as distorted if I'm doing another group. Sometimes we'll use um, Django blocks that are different colors. And each color corresponds to a different type of cognitive distortion. And I have uh, cards and like the red cards represent all or nothing thinking. The yellow cards represent the availability heuristic. So whatever color block they pull, they've got to pull that type of card. And whatever's on that card, again, they have to identify how they have evidenced that cognitive distortion, and then a more moderate way or what they could do to address it so they're not using um, unhelpful thinking styles. We want to look at negative global stable attributions, extremely internal or external loci of control. And ineffective problem-solving skills. Encourage people to get out of the box. Uh, One of the things that we do in groups sometimes is I'll break them into smaller groups. And they have, um, one will have coat hangers, one will have bubble gum, one will have um, aluminum foil, you know, I... And duct tape, those are some of my favorites. And I have them identify as many things that they can think of to use that particular item to get outside the box. How many different things can you think of to uh, use bubble gum for? You know, be MacGyver, if you will. Yes, that's not solving life problems, but it can help them start thinking, you know, outside of the box. Addressing negative self-talk, identify situations that make the person feel uncomfortable, like asking somebody out, going on a job interview, seeing a cop, um, for each uncomfortable situation, make a list of the uncomfortable feelings the person experienced and the thoughts, not only the initial thought, but all of the thoughts, you know, think back to your ABC, um, your, your automatic beliefs, associated with that situation. Explore how each of the thoughts may limit the client's options and help them identify different ways of thinking about the situation that can lead to better options. Then finally, explore the impact of the new way of thinking on emotional responses and thoughts. So when when I was in graduate school, my husband was still on patrol and he would come by the facility periodically to pick me up for lunch and he would come by in his patrol car. And that would cause the clients just unbelievable stress because they had associated a cop car with, you know, bad things happening, even though he didn't, he wasn't there for them at all. So it was important for them to, you know, look at that and recognize that, you know, not to think about it and address their beliefs and their beliefs is there. He's here to take me away. Okay. Well, is there any reason he's there to take you away? You know, disputing the D, um, in ABCDE disputing some of their beliefs and then once they went through that process evaluating how they felt and how it felt to Um, re-examine and and think about a cop car in a different way as maybe maybe it's just a cop car that's driving by you know or maybe it's a cop that needed to stop to do some paperwork. Five steps to challenge beliefs that limit options for change. Listen to the client's beliefs. Help the client reframe that belief from a truth that is unchangeable to a thought. So instead of thinking, I am, I can never recover. They can say, I'm having the thought that I'm never, can never recover. Or I'm going to relapse to, I'm having the thought that I'm going to relapse. Thoughts can be changed. Help the client alter their beliefs to include options for changing the problem or changing their reaction to the problem by identifying what parts of the situation or reaction they can change to improve the next moment. Have them learn about the connection between thoughts, feelings, and actions. Identify and address, um... Cognitive distortions, they can keep daily cognitive distortion logs, or they can do worksheets, videos. There's lots of ways. Um, Learn about attributions and address negative, global, stable attribution. Um, In group, you can have a thoughts basket where you have different global, stable, negative thoughts, and people will draw a card, and then they have to restate it so it is positive, um, specific. Or, or maybe not, it can be negative, but if it's negative, it's also specific and changeable. Learn about locus of control and how to moderate an extremely internal or external locus of control. Helping people, again, look at what parts of the situation do I have control of. Encourage them to develop an effective problem-solving skill plan based on uh, the problems that trigger their depression. One of the books that I Assign people for initial reading is often the seven habits of highly effective people. It really applies to recovery, beginning with the end in mind, sharpening the saw, all that stuff. And it's an easily digestible book for a lot of people in early recovery when they're having a hard time focused. And help them increase feelings of self-efficacy, encourage uh, them, make sure that they're having Frequent successes. Socially, there can be a biochemical imbalance because they're stressed, because they don't have social support. Positive social support is one of our greatest buffers against stress. Your social support is not good. If you're fearing abandonment, then that is going to increase that HPA axis. Interpersonal conflict, interpersonal losses, ineffective communication skills, so you're not able to say what you need and get your needs met. And poor self-esteem can also contribute to feelings of depression. Have people learn about healthy relationships, identify healthy relationships that they currently have, encourage them to improve their self-esteem, which I put to them as their relationship with their self. How do they feel about themselves? They need to start being their own best friend. Identify issues that need to be addressed in current relationships to make them healthy. Doesn't mean you have to get rid of bad relationships, but you may have to work on them. Identify three people with whom you could develop a healthy support system. Learn how to handle, learn skills to handle conflict, learn effective communication skills, and learn how to ask for what you need. And uh, Linehan does a great job of covering a lot of these in the interpersonal skills section for dialectical behavior therapy. Situational things can also cause depression, including the environment, but also losses that the person has experienced as a result of life or as the result of life choices or as the result of their substance use. They may need to grieve things like loss of relationships, deaths, loss of their freedom, loss of their dreams. You know, maybe they thought life would be very different at this point. Their sense of order in the world and self-esteem. Environmentally, we want to look at what's going on, where they're living. What are they being bombarded by, in their senses, people in the environment. You know, there are certain people that walk into a room and they just have an energy that lights it up. And there are certain people that walk into a room and make you want to leave. Um, the energy in the environment is really important to consider. Not saying that they can necessarily completely overhaul it, but if there are negative people in their environment, they need to learn ways to develop emotional boundaries and create safe spaces in their in, environments, whether it's at work or at home, where they can get away from that negativity. They found that noise, especially, you know, ambient, loud background noise like traffic or even the wind turbines, um, can contribute to depression. It, 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 yeah. So anyway, toxins and allergens can make people feel stuffy, can make people feel sick and tired. Um, they can also prevent you from getting good sleep that can contribute to stress. When your allergies are acting up, that means you know your HPA axis is activated a little bit because it's encouraging your body to um, do what it needs to do to get rid of the toxins. And we know that when people have allergies, they've got inflammation, which is also associated with Da, 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 da. depression. Sensory overload or deprivation can cause stress in a person. If you're in a really noisy environment and you're just like, ah, I need quiet headphones, good things. Um, or if it's too quiet, some people, I know I'm, I'm an extrovert. I need, I like to have noise on, even if it's just in background noise. Um, it makes me feel calmer. I, I get stressed out when it's actually too quiet, because then I hear every creak and I hear everything and I'm like, what's that? And encourage them to identify depression triggers in their environment, things they see, hear, smell that may trigger feelings of depression, memories, something like that, and encourage them to figure out how they want to deal with that. Have them develop strategies to increase positive people in their environment and buffer against negative, address noise with either white noise machines, earplugs, um noise-canceling headphones, or just maybe talking to roommates and saying, you know, I I need sleep, so can we tamp down the noise after 10 o'clock? Eliminate toxins and allergens that may be making you feel depressed. Fresh paint. Paint is a depressant. Fresh paint, especially with the high uh, whatever it is, VO, whatever it is in the paints, can really cause some people to have significant depressive symptoms, and keep them from sleeping well create a calming corner in their house and or at work where there isn't too much or too little stimulation for the person and where there are triggers for happiness you know it may just be a little corner that has a tapestry on the wall and your favorite books and some aromatherapy okay that's my corner but um a place where they can feel calm and relaxed if you are a new mom this may be somewhere in the bathroom (laughs) I remember those days of the little fingers under the door going, what you doing, mommy? Um, but we all need to have a calming corner. Depression can impact almost any area of functioning. Depressive symptoms are on a continuum. You know, you can be completely apathetic and have no motivation to get out of bed, or you may just be a little off uh, that day. But We want to recognize that they are on a continuum, but we shouldn't ignore them when they happen. They will wax and wane, which does give people some hope. And in early recovery, it's even more likely that depressive symptoms may wax and wane, seeming seemingly for no apparent reason. And that's when, that bo- when the body is still repairing itself and altering the, the, the numbers of uh, receptors in the brain for certain neurochemicals. As those changes go on, as that uh, remodeling, if you want to think about it that way, goes on, there are going to be times that people may feel un- unpleasant. And we want to help them recognize that you know some days are going to be good. Hopefully more days than not are going to be good, but some days aren't going to be. Instead of when you feel bad, when, you, when you're having one of those bad days, instead of feeling like, oh crap, here we go again. What can you do to address those feelings to improve the next? Treatment planning needs to be individualized to address acute crisis and dangerousness, biomedical conditions, emotional, behavioral, and cognitive issues, their relapse or continued problem potential and their recovery environment. So that was a lot that we went through. Um, Depressive symptoms are very, very common. And a lot of people in early recovery in substance use treatment uh, do have a lot of things that they may feel hopeless and helpless about, that they may be grieving. And We don't want to take that from them. We don't want to tell them they shouldn't be feeling depressed. We want to help them recognize why they're feeling depressed and develop strategies to address those issues so they don't have to keep feeling depressed. If you want to... Identify some other tools and strategies. Um, I do have a book on Amazon that you can read for free with Kindle Unlimited that's 100 Plus Practical Tools to Defeat Your Depression. Or I also made a series of YouTube videos based on it. So if you don't want to read the book, you're not a visual learner or, you know, whatever, you can watch it for free on YouTube. Just click on that.